and do invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word this morning to Luke chapter 7. As I've already mentioned, that's where we'll find our sermon text today, Luke chapter 7, and we're going to be looking at verses 36 through 50. If you've been with us, you know that at this point in Luke's Gospel, we've just come off of a passage where John the Baptist, who was the, the forerunner, he was a, a cousin of Jesus, he was one that God used as the last of the Old Testament prophets to proclaim that the Messiah was indeed coming. He called people to repentance, and he prepared their hearts. Uh, he is now in prison awaiting execution for calling people out on their sins, specifically for calling out Herod on the immoral relationship that Herod has entered into with his brother's wife. And so, as a result of that, uh, Herod imprisons John the Baptist, and he will soon die but before that, he has sent a question to Jesus inquiring about whether Jesus is indeed the one or not. He was doubting and struggling with despair. And we talked about that last Lord's Day. And, and Jesus not only responds to that question, but he then responds to this great crowd that's gathered around him as he's teaching and ministering. And he commends John the Baptist and he commends his great faith. And in commending John the Baptist, he also rebukes the Pharisees. The Pharisees were teachers of the law, and they were people who prided themselves on self-righteousness. And so they did not heed John's warning. They were not baptized by John. They saw no need for repentance in their own lives because they felt they were self-righteous. They had a righteousness that depended on their works. And so it's this context then that coming off of this, that now Jesus is invited to go to the home of a Pharisee and to dine with him. And they will have a, an unexpected visitor uh, that will come to that dinner. And so that's where we're at now in Luke 7. And so I'm going to read this passage for us. And so I want to invite you as I read it to stand, if you're able, out of reverence for God's Word. Now we stand for the reading of God's Word because it is God's Word, not man's Word. And, and He has handed it down to us. And, and this is what His Word says through a doctor named Luke, who, inspired by the Holy Spirit, has written this account. It begins with this in verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him, asked Jesus, to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus, answering, said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, now, The one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house, 
You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. And those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. He would pray with me. Father God, we thank you. Again, for this day, your day, this Lord's day, we thank you for this, your word. And I pray now that you would teach us from it, that we might rightly respond in repentance and in faith. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. As a young lady growing up in Brighton, England, Charlotte Elliott was known as Carefree Charlotte. And like most young ladies in her day, she didn't really have a care in the world. She had lots of dreams and ambitions about how life would turn out, but those dreams and ambitions did not come to fruition as she had planned because when she was in her early 30s, she was struck with a sudden illness that left her as an invalid for the rest of her life. And so rather than being carefree Charlotte, she would be cared for Charlotte. She would depend on her family for the rest of her life to care for her needs. And this brought her into a deep state of depression and despair. She had much anger and bitterness towards others and especially towards God. And so her family, in hopes of remedying this and helping her in some way, invited a visiting pastor to come over for dinner that they might counsel her and encourage her, but things did not go according to that plan. In fact, one account I read of that dinner, the author said this, Over dinner that night, Charlotte lost her temper and railed against God and her family and even this visiting minister. Her parents left the room, hurt and embarrassed, leaving her and the pastor alone. He looked at her and said, you're tired of yourself, aren't you? You're weary of who you've become. You're holding on to hate and bitterness because you have nothing else to cling to. She sarcastically asked him, and what is your cure for me? He said, faith in the person that you're trying so hard to despise. As he talked to her about the gospel, Charlotte softened some and then said, suppose I wanted to become a Christian like you, what would I have to do? Surely I would need to cleanse my life before God would love me. He said, no, he cleanses your life and all you do is come to him just like you are now and he will love you and forgive you. She laughed and said, come to God like I am right now and he will love me. Yes, the minister said. Jesus said, whoever comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. John 6, 37. And in that moment, the Holy Spirit of God pierced her heart and Charlotte indeed 
did just that. She came as she was, and she trusted in Christ as her Savior. As I read that account recently, I, I was reminded of the objection that so many have to the gospel of Jesus. And the objection is that uh, in order to come to Christ, surely I, I need to fix myself up for it, or fix myself up first, or they'll say, you know, God wouldn't want me, I, I, I'm too far gone. And yet, uh, we are reminded from that story, and especially reminded from God's word today, that God invites the sinner, that, that Jesus came to seek and save the lost, that we don't clean ourselves up first or make ourselves presentable in order to come to Christ. We come indeed just as we are. And we see a great example of that in our passage today. And so I want to just walk through this passage, and I put before you there three observations about this text. Now, the first one is this, number one, that you see in your outline. We see here that Jesus welcomes weary souls burdened by sin. Jesus welcomes weary souls burdened by sin. Now, in order to kind of get a, a better understanding of what's taking place here, we have to look back to what took place before. I summarized it a bit for you, but again, Jesus has commended John the Baptist, and at the same time, he has rebuked the Pharisees for their unbelief. And specifically in that rebuke, you can look back just a, a few verses and see what Jesus said in verse 31. In speaking of these Pharisees and those who wouldn't repent, he says this, to what then shall I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace, calling to one another. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of God has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. And so what Jesus is saying here, and we talked about this last Lord's Day in this, this uh, comparison to children, is he's saying that the Pharisees and others, they were childish, not childlike. Jesus commends us having a childlike faith. Here he is rebuking them for being childish in their ways. And essentially he's saying, you're like kids playing a game, and when somebody won't do what they say, they get upset. And so the child says, dance for me, and, and you won't dance, and they, they get upset. And Jesus says, that's exactly what the Pharisees were like. In other words, he's saying, John didn't dance for them. Jesus didn't dance for them. And it seems to be in this context of eating. <laughs> they seem to have a problem with John because he didn't eat with them, and they had a problem with Jesus because of who he ate with. And then he says to them that, that wisdom is known by for children, meaning that, that, that all this stuff, your, your wisdom, it's, it's known by your actions. Well, then it's in that context that a Pharisee named Simon invites Jesus to dinner, <laughs> which I don't think that's coincidental. I, I think there's a connection here, and I think Luke places it here for that reason, whether it happened exactly sequentially or sometime later. Uh, he's wanting to show us something about Simon, and I think there's a context to him asking Jesus to come eat with him just after Jesus has rebuked the Pharisees for uh, being angry at who Jesus eats with. And we don't know Simon's motivation entirely here. Uh, we can assume that either uh, Simon was very interested in hearing more from Jesus, he wanted to be taught by Jesus, but I think given the context and given the way 
that Simon treats Jesus when he enters his home and how he's not hospitable to him at all, uh, that chances are that Simon wasn't inviting Jesus over to learn more from Jesus. I think perhaps Simon was offended by Jesus. Uh, Simon and the other Pharisees have just been called out by Jesus in front of a great multitude. Hundreds of people have gathered around them. And so th this would have been very offensive what Jesus said to them. And remember, they look at Jesus and they just see a, a rabbi, a teacher, who they're already plotting against, we know from Luke's gospel. And so perhaps Simon's thinking, well, I'm not going to, I'm not going to respond to Jesus in front of all these people who support him. I don't want to be driven out of here by this angry mob, but if I can get him on my turf, if I can get him in my home, and if I can load the deck, if I can get my friends around that table, then, then we will have him cornered, and then we'll be doing the ones who are rebuking him. Again, we, we don't know his motivation, but I think it's perhaps more like that than something else. And so Luke tells us then in verse 36, one of the Pharisees who we know is Simon. He asked him to eat. He went to the Pharisee's house and he reclined at the table. Now it's helpful at this point to know just a, a little bit about this, this contextually, what it would have been like in Jesus' day, uh, the way people's homes were arranged, and especially the Pharisees who were often people who had great resources. It was sort of a very large open floor plan, and, and to have a dinner like this would have been more like a, a block party than a private dinner. Uh, there would have been a, a courtyard outside of the home where friends and guests would have gathered, and even people passing by would have stopped in and, and would have visited with them. And then when it's time for the meal, they would have been invited in to come and sit and recline at this large table uh, where they would have had sort of a, a banquet meal in front of them. And during this time, it wouldn't have been uncommon for people to enter in between that courtyard and to get up and to sit down. That's what the context would have looked like. That would have been expected. But what was unexpected was who one of those uninvited guests were. Verse 37, Luke tells us, a woman of the city who was a sinner. A sinner. Luke doesn't tell us who this woman was, and he doesn't tell us what her sin was. A number of people over the years have assumed that this is Mary Magdalene, and I think part of that assumption comes from a, a blending of accounts in the gospel that were likely different accounts in the gospels. We have four gospel accounts, and we have references to a woman entering in as Jesus is at a dinner and, and an anointing of his feet that takes place, and yet I believe there are different situations that take place. There's at least one that happens with a woman named Mary, but she's Mary of Bethany. This is the sister of Martha and Lazarus. This takes place, I believe, later in the gospel accounts than when this event takes place, and so some have looked at that and seen Mary, and then they've said, well, that must be Mary Magdalene, and they've put this in with this account. Uh, there are multiple accounts and, and multiple versions, but I don't think they're all the same story. I think they're probably different stories, and so all that we take to understand that we don't know who this is. It could have been Mary Magdalene. Uh, Luke will mention her in the very next passage as one who is following Jesus at this point. But if that were the case, Luke likely would have said this was Mary Magdalene. And so all we know about this woman is she was a known sinner. We don't know what her sin was. 
And we know that that sin probably related either to her livelihood or her lifestyle, that her sin was such that that is what she was known by. And we see that in the scriptures. We see, for example, tax collectors were associated as sinners based on their profession. So it could have been her profession. It could have just been her actions. Everybody knew about it, whatever it was. And so you can kind of picture the scene here. Here's the Pharisees reclining at this table. They're they're a righteous, a self-righteous, a very holy bunch of men gathered around priding themselves on their self-righteousness. And they're looking at Jesus, who they kind of view as this rebel rabbi, who they, they don't believe is the Messiah. They're at this point plotting harm against him. They're trying to catch him saying the wrong thing. And so as they're looking at him, you can imagine what it is when this woman known for her sin not only enters into the room but comes up to Jesus and begins to weep. Scripture says here in verse 38 that she was standing behind him at his feet. She was weeping. She began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now, In our context in this day, that would be a very unusual sight. (laughs) And so when we read it, it it kind of sits out as very peculiar to us. I mean, we know this is her as an act of gratitude and love, as we'll see. This this is what she's doing out of gratitude and love. This isn't what we do today. You're going to gather, perhaps, for a meal today with family, and and maybe you want to thank somebody for something. You're you're probably not going to start taking their shoes off and crying on their feet, wiping their feet with their hair. If I was to do that for you, your feet would be wet. I don't have any hair. It's it's not common for us at all. It seems peculiar. It seems strange. And yet this wasn't so peculiar and strange in Jesus' day. There's a context here. In fact, in my study, I came across one account that was from a Greek manuscript that was written uh, not too long before this incident took place. It has been preserved, and in that Greek manuscript, we read historically uh, about a woman who worshipped the goddess Aphrodite, and she had been praying to her goddess Aphrodite for the safe return of her husband, who was a sailor and had been gone for some time. And when her husband returned safely, What was written in this account is that she entered into the temple of Aphrodite and she did this very same thing. She wept at the feet of this idol, of this statue made in the image of Aphrodite. She began to wipe her tears off of the statue's feet with her hair. She began to anoint them with oil. This in Jesus' day, it was symbolic of reverence, of worship, And so where that woman in that novel was worshiping her goddess Aphrodite, here we see a different woman who we will know as we continue this passage has been forgiven of this great sin that she was known by. And in response to this forgiveness and her adoration of Jesus and her worship of her Lord, her Messiah, now she is bowing down at his feet and she is washing those feet with her tears. And Luke's account, as I've said already, we we go straight from that scene where uh, Jesus is commending John the Baptist and rebuking the Pharisees to this Pharisee's home. But in Matthew's account, 
between those two things, Jesus continues to preach. And in Matthew's account, Jesus says this, a familiar thing to many of us in Matthew 11. He offers this invitation. And the invitation is this, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And so if we piece together that timeline, and if indeed Jesus offered that invitation not long before this dinner, then we could kind of piece together that this woman, this sinner, either heard that invitation or another from Jesus. And so when she hears that Jesus is at Simon's home, she, who I believe at this point has responded to that invitation, she wants to come and she wants to thank Jesus for this forgiveness. She is a, a weary sinner who has experienced this burden lifted by the Lord, and she has come to worship him. Broken and grateful. And that doesn't seem to sit well with Simon. Because to Simon, all he sees is this sinful woman known for her sin coming up to this supposed miracle-working rabbi and she's touching his feet. If you've been with us in our study or if you know much about these times in God's Word, you know that for a woman like this to touch someone, that immediately makes them unclean. But as we've already seen in Luke's gospel, where for others, ceremonially, this would be true of them. They, they being clean, would touch the unclean, and they would become unclean with Jesus, who's perfectly righteous and holy, who is the epitome of cleanliness, of holiness, of righteousness. When he touches the unclean, the unclean become clean, and he stays clean because he's the Lord. He's the Holy One. Simon doesn't believe that. And so Simon, Luke tells us, he doesn't say this out loud. He doesn't shout this at the table. He doesn't even turn and say this to his friends. Luke says he says it to himself. You know, if you're like me, you say stuff to yourself all the time. And personally, I'm very grateful that I can't hear what you say to yourself. And you're probably grateful you can't hear what I say to myself. For both of us, while I'm preaching, especially. <laughs> I don't want to know what's going through your mind. You don't want to know what's going through my mind. But Jesus being Lord, he knows what's going through all our minds right now. And at this table as he's reclining and as they're eating, just imagine, he knows what's going through everyone's mind in that moment. And so he responds directly to Simon, who in his mind, Luke tells us, says, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him, for she is a sinner. What Simon didn't understand in this moment is she wasn't the only sinner at the table. That Simon was a sinner. That Simon's friends gathered at that table were sinners. There was only one at that table who was not a sinner. Only one able then to forgive sin. Simon didn't get this. And if we're not careful, we don't get it. We, we can read this passage and walk away from it with that title, A Sinful Woman Forgiven, but you could also title this A Sinful Group of Pharisees Who Did Not Experience Forgiveness. Because they refused 
to accept, as we've already seen, the purposes of God. And they refused to repent, and therefore they showed no love for Jesus in this moment. She, who understood what it was to be forgiven, she showed much love. Which brings us to that second observation there before you. Number two, a greater awareness of our sin leads to a greater love for the Lord. And I believe indeed she has a true awareness of her sin in this moment, and that these others, these Pharisees, they do not. And so Luke tells us that Simon makes this observation. He says this to himself. Jesus knows what he's saying, knows what he's thinking. And so he responds to Simon. Luke tells us that he essentially looks at Simon and says, Simon, I have something to say to you. I mean, just think about that context for a second. They're reclined at the table. Simon, very pious and self-righteous, is looking at Jesus. He's looking at this sinful woman. Simon's probably even thinking about himself and thinking, well, now my home is unclean because she's coming to my home. And if he knew who was touching her, he would tell her to get out of here right now. And as he is thinking these things, Jesus looks at him, locks eyes with him, and says, Simon, I want to say something to you. <laughs> I don't know if that catches Simon off guard. I don't know if that pierces him what it does. But he, okay, okay, Jesus, say something. And Jesus tells him a parable. But the parable before says there's, there's two men who owed a moneylender. And one of them, he says, owed him 500 denarii. The other owed 50 denarii. Now to us today, denarii is monopoly money. What is it? We don't know. It doesn't make a lot of sense to us. We don't operate in denarii. But in this context, we understand that the denarii was a day's wage. So you can do the math. One of these owed about two years of their salary. The other owed about two months. Now, it's not good to owe anybody anything. But you can see the difference in the burden there, can't you? <laughs> One of these men would have to work and save every dime for two months to pay back what he owed. The other would have to do this for two years. Which in that context, obviously, you'd have other expenses. It would see, seem like an insurmountable debt. But Jesus here is telling stories, telling a parable. He's illustrating a point. And so he says, imagine what it would be to have this, this greater debt and this lesser debt, but the moneylender realizes neither one of them can pay him. It doesn't matter if it's two months or two years. Neither one of these men are ever going to pay him back. And so he, being a gracious moneylender, just wipes the debt. That's a good day for these guys. If you're here from my mortgage company today, that's the application for you. Just wipe it clean. I mean, you can imagine what that would be. It'd be one thing for, you know, some small bill, you know, your power bill that month to be wiped out. Well, that's great. Got a little extra money this month. Be another thing for your, your mortgage to be wiped out. One of those means, you know, you're going to eat at Texas Roadhouse tonight. The other one means, you're, you know, I don't know, either every night. I mean, it's a life-changing event to have that much forgiveness. And so Simon, again, he's, he's illustrating a point, and he says, or Jesus illustrating a point to Simon, he says, okay, which one of them is going to love you more? Meaning, which one of them is going to have more gratitude, more thankfulness, more, more love towards this moneylender? They're, they're so thankful to this moneylender, they're going to appreciate it. And Simon, it seems at this point, is, Perhaps putting some pieces together, and, and maybe he's already starting to see, okay, yeah, I'm, I'm, I get it. 
because of the way he answered. Well, I suppose, you know, I mean, I guess if you're going to make me say it, it's the one for whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus says that's exactly right. And then he, he, he pulls all this together and he points out that, that Simon showed him no hospitality. Again, in this context, in this day, this is what you did for your dinner guests. You, you put out water so that they could cleanse their feet. You, you had like an anointing oil, which we might think of as like a perfume of cologne, and they could, they could put some of that on or somebody would put that on them. Again, you can imagine this day, this context, well, that would be a helpful thing before you all sat down to eat a meal together. In this context, in this day, like it is in many cultures today, you, you greeted one another with a kiss. And Jesus, in pointing out that Simon did none of these things for him, points out that this woman did these things in excess. He's making a clear contrast between the two, which indicates to us something about their hearts. It says something about Simon that he wouldn't even extend a common courtesy to this one that he invited to come to the meal. And it certainly says something about this woman that she goes over and beyond to show her gratitude to Jesus as an uninvited guest as one who knew what it was for every one of those Pharisees to look at her with contempt. And yet she entered into that hostile environment in order that she might show this gratitude. Now, Jesus then says in verse 47, he, he brings all this together. He says, therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. Now, I think we can look at this in one of two ways. We can look at that first statement that Jesus makes about forgiveness and her love, and we can look at that as, well, because she showed him this love and because she did these things, now she is forgiven as a result of this love that she showed. Or we can look at this as because she had experienced forgiveness from God, that forgiveness then, the fruit of it was this love she showed. And because she showed this love, it was indeed fruit that she had indeed been forgiven. And I think the greater context here helps us to see it is that second one. That something has already taken place in her life. That she was not pleading with Jesus in order that she might be forgiven. Rather, because she was so grateful for the forgiveness that Jesus offered, she was now in response to that forgiveness showing love. Thus, Jesus says, those who are forgiven much, love much. Those who are forgiven little, love little. Now, I don't think that Jesus says this to say, Simon, you've only sinned a little bit, and she sinned a whole lot. We, we tend to rank people this way. We struggle with the heart of the Pharisee because, because we like to think of ourselves as righteous. We like to think of ourselves as better. And so for every one of us in this room, you can always make yourself feel better by looking at the sins of another. 
Maybe that other's here this morning. And maybe you can look to one side of the aisle and you can say, well, at least I'm not like them. As long as you understand that somebody's looking at you right now and they're saying, well, at least I'm not like them. You're that other person for someone else. That, that standard isn't really a standard. It's a, a shifting scale that's so inaccurate and so self-deceived because what the Scripture says is that we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And what we have here is not a greater sinner and a lesser sinner. What we have here is one who understands the greatness of their sin and one who doesn't understand the greatness of their sin, who believe they are the lesser sinner, if they even believe they are a sinner, and therefore they would see themselves as one not needing forgiveness or not needing much forgiveness. And as a result of that, they show no love for Jesus. Jesus is saying her extravagant love is fruit that she truly understands the depths of her sin and the greatness of her sin. Therefore, she has experienced forgiveness. Your lack of love, your lack of care for the Lord Jesus is because you haven't truly experienced what it means to be forgiveness, forgiven of the Lord Jesus because you don't see a need for forgiveness. And this thought that plagued Simon and so many others, it plagues us today. Perhaps it plagues some of you. Because if you never realize, if I never realize the greatness of our sin, we will never understand the greatness of the gospel, nor will we respond to the great offer of the gospel. Because the gospel begins with an understanding, Romans 3.23, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so if you don't understand this morning that you have sinned, then you have no understanding of what follows. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Well, if you don't know you're a sinner, you're not too cared about the wage. Romans 5a, but God demonstrates his love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That doesn't matter to you because you don't think you're actually a sinner, so it doesn't make any difference to you that Jesus died for your sin or not because you haven't really sinned, so that's great for other people who've sinned, but you don't need it. Therefore, when we get to Romans 10 and we read that if you confess Jesus as Lord, if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved, that doesn't really matter to you. Because why would you confess Jesus as Lord? Why, why would you care about this offer of forgiveness if you don't really think you're a sinner to begin with? It all starts with understanding that you and I are sinners. And friends, the most gracious thing that I can say to you today is you indeed are a sinner. And I'm a sinner. We've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the point of this story, the point of this illustration that Jesus puts before these Pharisees is that they might see the greatness of their sin so that they might understand the free offer of the gospel that Jesus is offering to them. And yet it seems at this point they're willing to take the gamble that so many today are willing to take. And it's a gamble of self-righteousness. And it's the thought process that, well, I'm not too sure about this, and, and I'm sure there's other religion in other ways, so, so what I'm betting on is this. I'll just be a good person. And at the end of the day, however it works out, as long as my good outweighs my bad, then I'm in good shape. And that's, that's the gamble so many take. I, like many of you, just last weekend, I think it was last weekend, Kentucky Derby. I was watching as the Derby event itself got closer. 
And as they were preparing for the race and they had a reporter on there, they were talking about the odds. They were talking about how uh, the odds for the uh, favored horse in the race, or one of the favored horses in the race, was about to change because somebody was about to put a $1.2 million bet on this horse and that would change the odds. And, and the person was standing in the background, they're known as Mattress Matt. You might know the story of Mattress Matt. I don't really know his story other than he apparently has lots of money and likes to bet it on horses and other things. He was placing a $1.2 million bet on Angel of Empire. And as soon as he put that bet on that horse, that horse then, according to the odds, became the favored horse. And so if I understand it correctly, had that horse won the race, uh, he would have uh, profited somewhere in the range of $5 million. And you can eat at Texas Roadhouse a lot for $5 million. Angel of Empire, I don't want to spoil this for you if you're going to watch the Derby this afternoon, so close your ears. He didn't win. So, $1.2 million, poof. <laughs> he just gambled and he lost it. And again, I'm, I'm assuming this is somebody of great resources who they could afford to lose that, but, but it was a gamble, it was a bet. But it paid off, great. You get all this money. Didn't pay off, well, lost money, but far as I know, he didn't lose his business and he'll live to see another day and make another bet. We make gambles all the time. Wagers. Even if you're not a betting person, we, we do this in hopes that it'll turn out this way, and we do this in hopes it'll turn out this way. And, you know, worst case scenario, well, that didn't work out like we thought. We'll have to go to plan B. Best case scenario, worked out like we thought, and man, look at it. It, it all worked out. We can afford certain losses. Why would you gamble, though? The state of your eternal soul. And yet so many do it every single day. Well, I just think, well, no, just, I know that's what the Bible says and that's what this religion says, but I, but I just think, here's my game. God in His grace towards us has not left our eternity to be a wager or a bet. He has actually put before us his word. He has revealed himself to us that we might know here's a sure thing. If we indeed will confess Jesus as Lord, if we indeed believe in our heart that God raised him, that we will be saved 100% of the time. But it's not based on us or our works. It is based entirely on him, which brings us to that concluding observation. And I'll leave you with this, number three. A reminder that we are saved by grace through faith, not as a result of works. And so, verse 48 and following, he says to her, your sins are forgiven. Again, I believe this is a statement of assurance that she has experienced this forgiveness. The fruit of that forgiveness is her love. And Jesus is reiterating and assuring her, your sins have been forgiven. They are forgiven. Which those self-righteous Pharisees at the table said to themselves, who is this? who even forgive sins. And so that there may be no confusion on this point, he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Your faith. Not your works, not your humility, not, not your washing of my feet, not your anointing. Your faith has saved you. Therefore, go in peace.
Paul says it as well in Ephesians chapter 2, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of your works, so that no one may boast. Jesus forgave her. Jesus can forgive you. You don't have to clean yourself up first. You come as you are. On May 9th, 1822, when Charlotte Elliott realized that she didn't have to clean herself up first, she placed her faith in Jesus Christ. She trusted him as her Lord. Her life would never be the same. She would remain an invalid, dependent on the care of others. She would never be married. She would die at the age of 82, but along the way, she would write down about the gracious offer of the gospel in many ways, in many poems, many hymns. In fact, these hymns were put together and collected into a hymnal titled The Hymnal for Invalids. And one of the famous poems that made it into that hymnal of invalids was a poem about her own testimony of how she came to faith in Christ. I'll leave you with these words from her that she wrote. Just as I am, without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou biddest me to come, O Lamb of God, I come. Just as I am, and waiting not to rid my soul of one dark blot, to thee whose blood can cleanse each spot, O Lamb of God, I come. Just as I am, Thou wilt receive, wilt welcome, pardon, cleanse, relieve. Because thy promise I believe, O Lamb of God, I come, I come. May we respond to this free offer of the gospel in the same way. If you would stand together as I pray for us.